Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Freddie. I'm Andrew. And I'm Zoe. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This is an episode we like to call You Ask Us. Hello, I'm Freddie Hayward, political correspondent at The New Statesman. And joining me in the studio, I have Zoe Grunewald, our politics and policy correspondent, and Andrew Marr, political editor. They've been digging around in our virtual mailbag, and I've brought a couple of questions to discuss. Andrew, would you like to go first? Ruffle, ruffle, ruffle. This is a question from John, who wrote in to say, what political descriptions, narratives or expressions should there be a swear jar for journalists or broadcasters who use them? Examples of this off the top of my head, he says, David Cameron being a centrist, Rishi Sunak being a technocrat, and Suella Bravman's resignation letter. Uh, Well, thank you for that, John. This is a really tough one, I think, because there are lots of irritating phrases we all use, but most of the time they are shorthand for some kind of political truth we have to acknowledge and jump beyond. But I will throw in the use of the word ruthless to describe tight fiscal or economic policies. Rachel Reeves is being ruthless Mm. in her approach to the economy, you know. That was a ruthless aspect of the autumn statement from Jeremy Hunt, because we don't actually mean ruthless. We mean putting into other people's lives a bit more misery, a bit more hardship and carrying on as you are yourself for your own political advantage. That isn't ruthless. That's just cruel. Yeah, they're shorthands for ideologies, essentially, I think. I mean, same with the, the centrist comment about Cameron. It's not as if he was centrist. It's just that he has this tone, this sense of supposed decency and chumminess that gives him this aura of professionalism, yes. when his policies actually might be quite ruthless to you short term. A, a, a kind of, you know, sort of cheery, rubbery kind of bonhomie that kind of... And, Plum-faced. And, 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 and smooth and, and cheerful, a little smile always on his face. But that does not describe the effects of austerity. Mm. I've got Keir Starmer forensic... Do you remember that when he first started doing PMQs, every single week, commentators would go, oh, he was so forensic, so loyally compared to the ruffled Boris Johnson. But again, you know, there is an element of truth about that. He is a trained lawyer Mm. and his instinct is to pick apart somebody else's argument sort of phrase by phrase and go at it or look at the numbers. Mm. And that is loyally in a rather ineffective way in terms of politics. Politics is a cruder, ruder, Mm. sort of wilder kind of trade. And the pained expression 
on Keir's face when Boris Johnson was calling him Sir Crasheruni Snooze Fest, the human bollard, or whatever it might be, shows the difference between somebody who's come up through the arts and understands the, the, the brutal art of rhetorical speaking, and political speaking, and somebody who is a lawyer. Mm. I think for me, my bugbears are quite similar to what you were originally saying. It really irks me when we talk about the autumn statement, the spring budget, and political commentators refer to uh, the government's finances as the mm. nation's credit card or, mm. you know, the household budgets. It's this kind of oversimplification of how government spending works. And obviously it's done to help the public sort of understand, um, you know, how these measures will work and the sort of things the government have to weigh up. But as you say, that kind of language allowed people to accept austerity, for example, as a sort of political necessity. Well, actually, we could look at the word austerity, couldn't we? Mm. Because I've got a book on my shelf at home called The Age of Austerity. And it's looking at the 1940s and early 1950s. And in many ways, austerity then felt like quite a virtuous thing. It was kind of, you know, middle class people giving up a little bit of this or a bit of that um, for the sake of the higher taxation to create the welfare state and the NHS. And it was, you know, let's not waste food. Let's not uh, throw away clothes that can be worn for another few months um, in the cause of sort of it, to, to me, it's, it's quite a good middle-class Protestant virtuous thing. Yeah. It's the alternative to mass consumption and waste and all of that. And yet now austerity has become uh, the shorthand mm. for particularly brutal conservative economic policies over a period of, what, 10 or 13 years. Mm, I think that's right. I think using the word austere or austerity to describe that kind of, that rollback of government spending makes it sound like they're doing something sensible and responsible. Um, but it is, you know, it was a political, absolutely a political choice to withdraw mm. funding from certain areas of the state and allow people to kind of slip through the cracks. Mm. Um, but, you know, the way it was described yes. was almost like it was this very responsible decision. Mm. Um, and then we've got this, as you say, Zoe, this uh, analogy that government spending is like, uh, credit card is sort of one of Thatcher's, Max out the credit mm. card. Exactly, yeah. Thatcher's enduring legacies. I mean, it's. I mean, if you are going to use an analogy, it's a shame almost that we don't have the shorthand of business, you know, who borrowed to invest and try and grow things. Of course, the state in no way is like a business because it has its own currency as if, you know, Tesco could start printing its own money if it wanted to uh, set up a few more, more stores. But it's much better than the analogy of the household, mm. which just mm. makes it seem as if borrowing is intrinsically bad and you're obviously not going to get more income just from borrowing. Mm. And to throw one final phrase in, I'd also stick in U-turn as well, because we talk about U-turns yeah, all the time. And obviously, I know that sometimes a bit of policy is genuinely a U-turn. But I think it's a sl it's used a bit too much, a bit all-encompassingly, for when politicians are actually adapting policy and responding to contextual changes. And, you know, it's good that policy develops and yeah. changes over time. If, if politicians stick to one policy they had in 2019 and don't change it, despite all the sort of things that are going on, that yeah. would be... That would be wrong. So although sometimes U-turn is correct, I think sometimes it's misused. It's one of Orwell's dying metaphors rather than dead metaphors, I think. So, it, yeah, it doesn't work at all. Yeah, and it, it's used as a kind of yabu, you've U-turned, you mm. fool, mm. to kind of, as a sort of allegedly humiliating assertion, rather than if you said to the same politician, so you've changed your approach on this. You could then have a more grown-up conversation because the politician would say, yes, we have changed our approach because this has happened mm. or because we didn't understand quite how serious that aspect was going to be, so we've changed. And if you get away from the ha-ha, you've U-turned, then you have a better conversation. Yeah, if only, though, they were U-turning because of the facts rather than the political mm. circumstances. Mm. Yeah. 
after the break, it's Zoe's turn to ask a question. Zoe, give us a clue. A little bit of uh, joy and light and optimism in this one, I think, Freddie. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all of our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for The New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back after this. Do you need a gift that's priceless? Liberal, free-thinking journalism has never been more important. Give the stories and the perspectives that matter with 20% off our gift subscriptions this holiday season. View the link on the show notes to save 20%. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So Zoe, what's your question? Okay, so I picked one of our YouTube questions this week. So Shah, one of our lovely listeners, asks, what are your most optimistic thoughts or policies that might be put in place by a Starmer government? Um, so if I kick off, I think one of the things that I, I wouldn't say I'm excited about, yeah. but I'm optimistic about is this workers' rights reform. This group of policies that uh, Angela Rayner has sort of been spearheading um, to basically improve the lives of workers. So it's stuff like pay agreements, banning fire and rehire, uh, ending zero hours contracts, uh, pushing up minimum wage, repealing some of the anti-union legislation, just generally a, a kind of raft of measures that would make, would strengthen workers' rights. Um, and I think this is potentially a really good thing. We've seen over the last 13 years a rollback of workers' rights. We saw a lot um, just over the past year alone with the anti-strike legislation. Um, people are frustrated in this country their pay has been stagnant. Uh, people, you know, a lot of people don't have uh, workers' rights until two years into their contract. So it means people can be made redundant. There are various policies that are, that really do affect people's day-to-day lives and make people feel insecure and unstable. And I do think Labour are fairly committed to this because Labour's kind of in a situation with the unions right now where the unions are asking them to talk about public spending, talk about taxation. Labour are nervous to do that. So what they've done instead is promise this big strengthening of workers' rights. Mm. So you hope that Labour are committed to this. Angela Rayner's kind of out front promising the unions that they'll do this. Um, obviously, there's there's still questions about how this will work. I'm not sure if the civil service have looked over these proposals yet. Things can change. There can be U-turns. And there's a cons- consultation to be had as well. Absolutely. But it's nice to see, at least mm, in a kind of indicative yeah. way, that Labour will be returning to its roots in the sense of actually strengthening workers' rights. Andrew, you're an optimist, aren't you? I am an optimist. I'm always a sunny optimist. Uh, I was interviewing for the New Statesman this week uh, for our conference, Path to Power, Andy Burnham, the mayor of Greater Manchester. And Andy said, you know, we can build you 5,000 really good new council houses quite quickly and they're going to be environmentally friendly and really nice places to live. He was, by the way, brimming with optimism generally. He was by far the most optimistic Labour figure I've come across recently. A real contrast to the kind of tight, sort of self-controlled mood of the shadow cabinet. 
He actually said the most extraordinary thing. He said, you know what? I think 2024 is going to be a bigger and better moment for the progressive cause than 1997 was. And that is so counterintuitive, given where the economy was in 1997 and given all that optimism of the Blair years and all of that. Uh, I won't go into every reason he gave for this, but he had a very good narrative to tell. And part of that narrative is that in 1997, there was very little really effective structural politics outside Westminster. Um, they were going to go ahead with, with devolution for Scotland and Wales. That hadn't happened. But above all, there was a very old-fashioned system across the Midlands and north of England. He said, now we have the structure. We have a lot of the powers we need. We are ready to go. So when they press the go button, it's really going to happen. You're going to see extraordinary things happening on uh, transport. And we, we can raise money on land values by when we put in a new east-west rail link. Um, and we can build those houses and we can do it fast. I think beyond the Andy Burnham agenda, I think Labour will be building a lot of houses. I do think they're going to go for a new generation of new towns. I'm a new town lover, a new town enthusiast, perhaps one of the few people in the organisation who really admires and likes Milton Keynes. So there you go. <laughs> that was Roy Jenkins back in the day in many ways. But um, So I think we're going to see new towns. are going to see quite a lot of house building and that long, long period where as a country we simply haven't built enough homes for the people who live here, that is going to end. I feel good about that. I mean, it's remarkable to identify the change of mood that might happen after the election. Because at the moment, as you say, Andrew, we've got a quite sterile, um, depressive, uh, pessimistic mm. mood coming out of the Labour Party, in part because they don't want to sound too optimistic about a situation where people are struggling uh, around the country. They also don't want to set expectations too high. And they also don't want the media pressing them every day to justify why they might be optimistic. Now, let's say that Labour win a large majority next year, then that that's going to be a completely new environment in which they find themselves. I mean, some of the same things will apply. They won't want to raise expectations, but they will have the leeway and the confidence, I think, to try and set out a much more optimistic vision of where they want to go. Whether that actually translates into policies is a completely different uh, question. And I do think that if you're looking for policies where Labour might do something, you have to move beyond uh, tax and spend for the moment. And that's why I think you're right, Labour market reforms Mm. are some of the most... Mm exciting aspects of their platform planning reform as well. But Andrew, I mean, I want to ask you about uh, rejoining the EU because there's lots of people mm. who, deep in their hearts, want to do privately it. or publicly, want Labour to be the vehicle by which we rejoin. So can I start off by saying I'm not one of them? <laughs> um, I was always quite pro the EU back in the day. I think the EU is morphing and changing into a much different organisation, and in some respects, a darker organisation. This notion that if you are a kind of centrist, liberal, centrist dad type figure, the EU is your natural place to huddle. It's a warm, comfortable huddle for sort of centrist politics is no longer true, obviously. You look at Geert Wilders in the Netherlands, you look at what's happening in Germany, you look at the strong possibility that Marine Le Pen might be the next president of France, you look at Maloney in Italy. The EU is not what it used to be Um, Macron is trying to create a multi-speed EU again with a core EU, France and Germany, and everybody behind, which may make it easier for Britain in the end to be part of the kind of outer core or the outer circle. So I'm not somebody who wants to go back. But this has been a really interesting week. We've had Ursula von der Leyen saying the British will be back. It's going to be the next generation's task to bring Britain back and end Brexit. We've had David Cameron, uh, an anti-Brexit politician now, 
um, as foreign secretary, meeting people in Brussels, and that general sense of prickly unease on the right of the Conservative Party, the buggers are at it again, they're going to force us back. Now, I don't think we will go back. I don't think that Keir Starmer either wants to go back or certainly wants to put Britain through another referendum. I think after a referendum, you'd need another referendum before we went back into the EU. And I really don't see it. I don't think the, the deal on offer would be would be the same deal we had or anything like it. We'd have to go into the single currency. And I think that would only happen in circumstances of near national breakdown and, and collapse and chaos, which I devoutly hope won't be the case under a Labour government. Might be, but I don't think so. I do think, however, that we'll be back into something much closer to the single market. We will back, be back to being rule takers uh, in the cause of economic growth. And that isn't a bad option. Yeah, I mean, that the tone of that conversation has changed so much within the week, bearing in mind for the past five years or so, it's been the messaging out of Brussels or the, the briefings have always been a little bit, you fools, you've made a mistake, you don't really know what you're asking for, you don't yeah. understand the yeah. the EU setup. And now it's a little bit, oh, well, I think you're going to be back, which, the undertone of which is, well, we want you back. And if what you said is true about the deterioration of liberalism within Europe, and we as a country elect a centrist not to use that word again, but a, a sort of, you know, a left-wing uh, politician in the form of Keir Starmer, maybe there are some liberals in Europe who will look to Britain as the, the saviour, perhaps, of their project. I think we're going to end up with a much closer security relationship with the EU. I think Trump may very well win the next election in the States, and I think that means the beginning of the end of the transatlantic bit of the NATO partnership as core to that, I think Europe is going to have to really think hard about its own security. And I think outside the EU, Britain's going to be a big part of that. So I think that's going to happen. Mm. Um, and I think we have to accept dynamic alignment on a lot of uh, trade in goods and with any luck services and get better access if we're going to grow properly. I think those two things are going to happen, but I don't think it's going to go beyond that. I think it is positive that what we're hearing from Labour in terms of mood music around um, international obligations and closer ties with our allies and things like that, I, that's positive. It, it, mm. it sets the ground for better trading relationships, better diplomatic, better security relationships. And it is a kind of divergence from where the Conservative government are sitting at the minute, where they're being quite openly sort of hostile to uh, international law, talking about the ECHR in these negative terms. And I think that's where Starmer, having a history as a human rights lawyer, um, is quite positive and maybe sets a, a precedent for a new kind of environment that's much more kind of encouraging about international law and about relationships with our allies. Some optimism there, then. Thanks to everyone who submitted questions. We do read them all, so please keep them coming. If you'd like to send us a question, just go to newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. If you're listening on Spotify, just scroll down on the episode page and leave a reply. And YouTube viewers can drop a question in the comments. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Freddie Hayward, and my colleagues Zoe Grunewald and Andrew Marr. We'll be back tomorrow. This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.